This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. I am your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verify himself, Jamar Tisby. Gotta What's do up, it brother? Every single time. I'm feeling good, man. Words cannot express. We are doing a pass the mic live, and I see so many beautiful faces out here. I'm looking forward to having fun. So we are live in the great city of Memphis. Live audience, can you make some noise for yourselves? And Jamar, it would be remiss of us not to mention the great, generous hospitality yes. of Fellowship Memphis, yes. Pastor Jason Cook. Can we give it up for Fellowship Memphis? <laughs> so we just gonna have some fun tonight, is that cool? Let's do it. They're like, what? Are we sure? Are yeah. we supposed to have fun? Yeah, look, look, look. We got to say, y'all can help us, okay? Yeah, you don't y'all just can have, talk back. It's this okay. This is not a like, silent studio audience. Back. We in church, so you we can really, church. like, you can say amen, response. You know? Anyway, so Jamar, as, let's get right into it. So as a historian, you're a pretty voracious reader, right? Word. What you been reading lately? Well, you know, I got a lot of stuff assigned to me, but for pleasure reading, I have been highly anticipating this book that just recently came out. It's by somebody folks may have heard of. Okay. His name is Ta-Nehisi Coates. Okay. What's the title of the book? The, the title of the book, We Were Eight Years in Power, An American Tragedy. Okay. So for those who are not familiar with Ta-Nehisi Coates, he's a national correspondent for The Atlantic Magazine. And his specialty is the intersection of culture, society, and race, and politics with regard to the African-American experience. So he's released three books. The most famous one was released two years ago. It was called Between the World and Me mm. and received a National Book Award for well nonfiction. Deserved. Well deserved. Um, so before we get into a little bit of critique on Mr. <laughs> Coates, which is, okay, look, we recognize I'm, I'm not... I know Jamar's the academic. I'm not the academic. I'm just a pastor who loves Jesus, okay? <laughs> so I know my arms might not be long enough to box with, with the great Ta-Nehisi uh, Coates. You, mine ain't either. Look, but we just going to get into a little critique tonight of just some of the things that we read within the book that really challenged us. But before we get into that, I think we should affirm that we're pretty big fans of Mr. Coates and yes, some of the work that he does. Yes. What I love, as someone who writes, I love the labor that he puts into his craft. I mean, he has he has just bent his mind to choosing every word carefully. And, and there, you can't read a paragraph without highlighting or underlining something that just blows you away. So he's been brilliant at developing his craft. He's also an incredible ex- uh, he's an, also an incredible exegete of the culture. Sure. Yeah. So he, I mean, he sees very clearly on some matters, and I've benefited tremendously from his right. diagnosis of the racial condition in the United States. So the most common adjective to describe Tanahasi Coates would be that he's a truth teller. Mm. So he puts a mirror up to us and basically makes us face ourselves and kind of the history of our country. But the interesting thing is. He really does a, a remarkable job of not just letting us look at the mirror because he, he has to describe every little part of why we're messed up because it's interesting how sometimes we can, we can be prone to self-deception. Yeah. Right? So we can see who we are and we can see our reflection in the mirror but not want to face and deal with that which, which we see. Yeah, he's not giving the glamour shot version. 
of ourselves. Yeah. So this is interesting. So he dives into some essays that he wrote for The Atlantic over the course of the eight years of the Obama presidency. And so the most chilling portion, the most gripping portion is notes from year five. And it's interesting. It's wedged kind of in the middle of the book and it haunts everything that comes after the book and informs everything that came before. So it's basically the clearest, most vulnerable explanation of his atheist beliefs. Right. Right. Okay. So it's very chilling. Let, let, let's start by just reading just a little portion of this. So he says, there was a time when I believed in an arc of cosmic justice, that good acts were rewarded and bad deeds punished, if not in my lifetime, then in the by and by. I acquired this belief in cosmic justice at the vague point in childhood when I began to cultivate, however rudely, a sense of right and wrong. Tragedy is an unnatural fit on me. My affinity angles toward bedtime stories, fairy tales, and preposterous romance. And this is the key portion that he's leading up to. I would like to believe in God. I simply can't. What did you think when you read this, Jamar? Being the, being the reformed theologian historian that you are, what did you think when you read this? Well, like you said, so, so the way it's set up, it's, it's essays he's previously published, but then he, he prefaces each essay with his thoughts, with what he was thinking when he was writing this. And so this is like a peek into his process and really his, his soul as he's right. writing. And so it's incredibly intimate and vulnerable. And I just like, as a writer, that is so hard to do. Right. So, you know, mad props to just having the courage to put this out there. But then I'm reading as a believer, right? right. And one of the things that struck me is there was a time when I believed in an arc of cosmic justice. He goes on to say a sense of right and wrong and sort of basic presuppositional oh, apologetics. Here, here you go. Like, here you go. Where do you even get that sense of right and wrong? How right, do we have right. a notion that there is a way the world should be, right? Because that's the key. Everybody has a narrative, be it Christian or otherwise, of the way things should be. And then they have an explanation of why they aren't the way they should be. So let's pause here for a second. What, why would we want to, as Christians, critically take a look at something that ta Coates is writing? You know, because I think that's an honest question that many may wrestle with. Why would we want to open up a book like We Were Eight Years in Power mm -hmm. and pull it? And we could we could have talked about anything here. Why this? You don't want me to get on a soapbox. I do, actually. Okay. Oh. You'll be taller than Jabbar. Yeah. <laughs> Every live podcast is a tradition. It's a tradition. I may be short, but that was low. <laughs> well, so one of the things is I spent a long time getting a seminary degree. Right. And, and why was that? Is because I wanted to have a, a theological framework that would actually allow me to wade into all kinds of different situations knowing what I believed. And so I'm really baffled when Christians who spend so much time trying to get the theology right don't want to access scholars, thinkers like Coates. It's as if they're afraid they're, they're, they're going to be tricked into believing something they don't want to believe. Right. When I think, look, you've been equipped. You've been studying the scriptures. Some have, have gone to school. You've listened at church. So therefore, wade into it. And so I access someone like Coates because the brother is smart. Right. He gets a lot right. And I think as Christians... We need not to be afraid of engaging an atheist uh, or somebody who, who believes differently, but we do need to have a grid and a framework to say, you know, this aligns with the word of God, this doesn't, but I can read and think right. critically for myself. What you think? You know, I think sometimes, and especially for me coming from a pastoral lens, you know, 
it, it's interesting. We believe some people are too smart to get saved. <laughs> you know, we believe that God's, we doubt God's grace can reach even the public intellectual. Right. We doubt God's grace can reach even the White House, can, can reach even the people who are on Wall Street. Mm. Everyone needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that includes Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm. And if we who are believers in cosmic justice, the true and just judgment of a holy and a righteous God, it would lead that we would be the ones sharing that good news to people. And we're going to talk about it. It is good news. Let me read another segment from this. He says in here later on in Notes from Year 5, nothing in the record, I know you're going to love this, Jamar. (laughs) Nothing in the record of human, nothing in the record of human history argues for divine morality. And a great deal argues against it. Mm. He said, what we know, and this is interesting, is that good people very often suffer terribly while the perpetrators of horrific evil backstroke through all the pleasures of the world. Now, Jamar, <laughs> listen, I get it. Ta-Nehisi Coates is smart. This brother, for all his categories, for all his complex social analysis, did he just hit us with, I don't believe in God because good people have it bad and bad people have it good? It, it looks like it, That bro. seems super simplistic to me. But it also sounds like David in Psalm 73. Uh-oh, I almost uh-oh. wanted to tell him, like, look, you right on, brother. You sounded like the King David, the man after God's own heart. What, is, what does David say in Psalm 73? He says, verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, the wicked were backstroking through the pleasures of the world. Come on. Then he says, I can do this because I'm in church. So you Amen. See, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching now. I'm saying. So he said, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And then he says, they are not in trouble as others are. Mm. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. What does David find in mm. Psalms 73? He goes down to verse 16. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God. What? Y'all, y'all better look. Uh, anybody got an organ around here? B3, Hammond, Hammond? But what I'm saying is, I'm like, man, this sounds really like David. This sounds right, like right. the reflections of biblical writers. And it shocks me because it seems that for all his analysis and research and excavation of, of cultural principles and historical norms, he hasn't seen that there's plenty of Christians who have struggled with this. Right. I mean, I think what what Coates perhaps doesn't realize or doesn't resonate with is that there is a lot of that same sentiment in the Bible. I mean, right. you read through Ecclesiastes, you read through the Psalms. I mean, all the emotions are there, and Christians have experienced this, right? Yeah. There's nothing that's, yeah. that I see that's arguing for morality. It doesn't appear that way. Until, where are you, God? Right, what are you are doing? You, how, how long, oh Lord? Right. Uh, how long will the wicked prosper? All of that is there. So, so I think that's one thing we got to acknowledge. Like This is within the realm of human experience. Right. And we may get to this point sometimes. It doesn't mean, though, that A, we're not Christian, or B, there's no, no hope. Right. right. Absolutely. Here's something else he said. He said, Uh, Ideas like cosmic justice, collective hope, and national redemption had no meaning for me. The truth was in the everything that Mm. came after atheism, Mm. after the amorality of the universe, is taken not as a problem, but as a given. Mm. It was then that I was freed from considering my own morality away from the cosmic and the abstract. Life was short and death undefeated, so I loved hard since I would not love for long. So I love directly, get this, and fix myself to solid things, my mm. wife, my child, my family, health, work, and friends. Mm. So he said, 
hey man, you know, death is undefeated. So I might as well. Yo, there's no morality. So I love my wife and I love my kids and I love my job. I'm like, what? Sounds very moral. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, this sounds like morality, right? Right, right? What does it say about Coach that he loves even in the midst of it seems like he's tearing towards, you know, nihilism. It seems like he's tearing towards saying everything is meaningless. But then he says he loves these simple pleasures that God gives. I mean, it seems contradictory, right? Like, if, if there's nothing that argues for divine morality, we're just constantly being pulled back. To joy, we're constantly being pulled back to morality in the sense that there is a way things should be, right. and so he recognizes that. Look, I think Brother Coates could could get down with chapters ten through thirty-one of Proverbs. Okay, talk right? about it. Talk about it, brother. This man is living a wise life in the sense of loving hard. Right? Mm-hmm. That's a Christian thing. I love my wife. I love my child, my family, work, friends. He's, he's, he's trying to find joy in the good things of life. And these are good gifts that God gives him. He just doesn't recognize the giver, right? Right. So he says, even before you, before you continue, he says that his path is defiance. So his path now is that I'll shout against this, on, this, this unstoppable wave of meaninglessness. Here's the quote. If freedom has ever meant anything to me personally, it is this, defiance. Defiance. Now, he cites some people when he talks about defiance. <laughs> One of them is Ida B. Wells. And I want to be like, what? Like, how you going to cite Ida B. <laughs> now, she was defiant, but I mean, also connected to a hope as well. But the, yeah, exactly. Right. Because isn't defiance saying that there's there's something right. There's something on, to dog. fight for. Come on. Dog. And it is it is the resistance itself that is meaningful. Because you're fighting for that, right? And so it, it, you can't live a completely consistent nihilistic life, right? But notice this. Now, Coates realizes this. Okay. He says, and so in writing, I found that black atheism and defiance mm. morphed into a general theory of the life. Mm. No one was coming to save me and no one was going to read me. My reasons for writing had to be my own, divorced from expectation. There would be no reward. And then he says this, except, except there, there was. was. <laughs> so he said, there's not going to be a reward. I have no expectations. Nobody's going to read me. I'm not going to receive any acclaim for my work. And then he receives all this acclaim. And now that messes with his conception. So what I told Jamar was, I think that his question is not, the question underneath the question is not, why do bad people have good things? The question is, if I have good things, what differentiates me from them? That's the question. Because we're wrestling with the fact of, well, do I deserve this? Am I good? Mm. But, but what does the gospel tell us? The gospel tells us that grace has been freely given, mm. that it's not about our good versus our bad, but it's about what Christ has done for us. See, yes. And I think, see, Tyler's so philosophical. I can't even get on your level, bro. I'm just catching. I'm just, I'm just, stop, I'm just listening. Stop, I'm stop. absorbing. I thought it from just a much more like experiential level. I've been in this place before where you are so primed to be disappointed that your only defense against that disappointment is to have no expectations at all. Mm. Right? So it's armor for you. It's armor. It's armor against that that disappointment, against people letting you down, right? So as he looks at the span of human history and even the arc of his own life, he sees time and time again people failing, himself failing. And so what's the only way to get out of that despair is to say, well, don't expect anything good. Hmm. Don't expect it. How do we respond to that? As believers who do expect good things, what's the core? Is the core 
eschatological hope? <laughs> what's what's the basis for our hope? I mean, the, that is the core, right? We, what's the end game, right? And for Christians, we know the end game is victory. Death has been defeated, Come actually. On, Come on. So, so we can look forward to that. Now, the rub is this, where everybody places their hope only in the sweet by and by. And so right now, you just be miserable. That's it, mm-hmm. right? And I think there's a lot of folks, a lot of black folks, who push against Christianity because of that. They don't see it's relevant for right now, the here and now. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't see that it brings about a more just world. They don't see that it brings about more morality. In fact, they see many people who profess Christ to be the most immoral ones. Okay, so that's, that's a very important point, right? So we have to understand how justice acts as a grassroots apologetic for truth, right? Justice is a connection to the proof that God has moved and God moves upon his believers to live just lives. And where we don't do that, where we perpetuate oppression and injustice, mm-hmm. that's actually undercutting our evangelism because it undercuts our moral credibility. Big you know, time. when we stand on the side of those who, for lack of a better term, would oppress and enslave people, yeah. what are we saying about the Christian faith? And how does that play into the fact that Ta-Nehisi Coates feels that the world is godless? Mm. Is it because he has not seen Christians advocate for that which is true and good? That's big. That's big. That's big. Um, yeah. But I do want to acknowledge he gets a lot right. Absolutely. Okay, so, yeah, so yeah. going back to that line, nothing in the record of human history argues like, for divine Don't beat the brother down. Don't beat the brother down. I study history and <laughs> right, right. it's a grim story. Yeah, yeah, It is a very grim story with probably failures outnumbering victories in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to the church, race, justice, those kinds of issues. And so I think what Coates helps us do is take an honest look in the mirror like you were talking about. It's because there's a difference between hope and optimism, right? Come on, talk about that. So I think because everybody's saying, "Oh, he ain't got hope. He, he ain't got, got hope. hope. He ain't got hope." Of course, it's it. Yeah. Hope is a person. Like it's hope is Jesus, man. Amen. Like come Amen. on. Like I think what people are saying is he doesn't have optimism that things are just going to get better. There's going to be this happy ending. Everything's going to end right in the movie. Yes. Well, it's that. I mean, some of some of the folks have probably seen uh, that Baldwin interview where he's like, "You want me to believe all of these things about the church, about the government, about all of these." institutions. You want me to believe that they're for me, but there is absolutely no evidence to prove that. And so you want me to risk my life, my wife, my family on your optimism, right? (laughs) Right, right. And I think that's right. Like, what proof or evidence do we have in in the tangible, right? And and, and what that does is it gives us, it makes us realistic. Hmm. Not pessimistic, not optimistic, but realistic. So you're a realist. I'm a realist. Why are you a realist? Because Optimism is sort of a, a false hope, a false joy, right? It's, it's, it's cotton candy kind of thing. Pessimism is the same, but in reverse, where there's nothing good. Realism says, let's assess what's actually here, have reasonable expectations, right? I mean, let's talk about white supremacy in the United States structure. Right. I mean, do we think in the next 10, 20, 40, 50 years, it's going to go away? No. To me, that's a realistic picture. Right, right. But that's not pessimism, Mm -hmm. nor is it optimism that, yeah, we're going to have this colorblind society soon. But if you're going to be a realist, the only belief system that gives you the equipment to be a realist is the gospel. Correct. Mm -hmm. Because the gospel, what it shows us is it shows us the ugly 
not just the good, not just the, the sweet, but if you actually read the scripture, it shows the ugly. Bad news. Everyone gets put on blast in the presence of God. Mm. Right? And so when we think about that, we see the only place where you can have a realistic view, but at the same time know that the people who are backstroking in the pleasures yes. of this world will get judged and they will have to give an account for their actions is that's in the right. presence that's, of the Lord. That's what gets me, right? So, so we talked about this before, but so civil war comes along in the mid-19th century. Okay, come but on, from, historian. From 1619, historian. up through that point, folks didn't see change on the horizon. Right. They didn't see an end to their, their bondage, right? So if you're born in 1725, your parents were slaves, your descendants will be slaves, Declaration of Independence hasn't been declared, they haven't been talking about all men created equal, uh, Civil War is 100 and some years beyond how do you live? How do you survive? How do you wake up in the morning if you don't lean on the promises of God that the wicked will be punished for their wickedness? And guess what? It may not come in this life, right? That's realistic. There are some people who are going to live and die and most of their life will be misery in terms of their external circumstances, which, as you said, puts a burden on us yeah, as we people wrestle with of privilege, that. right? But at the same time, if we don't have a cosmic hope of justice then what's the point of loving our wives what's the point of loving our our families what's the point of that's there's no point to it but 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 in saying that at the same time answering the critique that christianity is only good for uh, you know uh divine life insurance because of that hope because we know there's justice and there's right and wrong there's a way things should be we labor and pray thy kingdom come, yes. thy will be done on earth. As it is. And you know what? Is it not arrogant of us to, in our present day, say that faith has no place in mm. the justice movement? Because if we look back at Ida B. Wells, at Fannie Lou come Hamer, on, at on. Frederick Douglass, at Lemuel Haynes, at Francis Grimke, right. at Stewart. Phyllis Wheatley, yep. these were people of faith and it was their faith that motivated them. This wasn't just a side thing, right? Like, so do we dishonor our ancestors and yeah. their not just historic faith, but the faith that prayed us into existence in, in, in our good. situation right now? And to his credit, Coates ends the, yeah. the chapter, ends the notes, you know, most ironically by saying, God might not save me, but neither would defiance. <laughs> so he's like, I have this defiance and I built this up and this is what I, this is my response to an unjust world. This is my response to the lack of the arc of cosmic justice. And then I'm going to be defiant. And then he gets to the end and says, well, I guess defiance won't save me. Either. I think it goes back to what you were saying in the beginning. It, you know, if if his main sort of um, struggle is why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? The book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. <laughs> right, right. I mean, people have been wrestling with that question sure. for a very, very long time. And there are answers to it. And so I, I literally pray for folks like Coates who have such a big influence and have such a powerful voice that they would come to know Christ. Right. And, and, and because I want this brother to have joy, yeah. like a deep abiding See, beyond, joy. beyond him being smart, beyond him yeah. having a platform. Yeah. The, the first thing is that he's been created in the image of God. That's right. And we That's want right. him to know his creator. That's right. To be known and fully loved at the same, because I, he's never had that, it seems. Right. You know, outside Talk of his the immediate family. Yeah, he said his father, when he came in, kid beat him up or kid hit him, and his father said, you better fight that boy or you're going to fight me. And he calls his father's answer godless. 
And then he says he gets older and he realizes that the nations are heathens too. The mm -hmm. nations are atheists, right? And deep down he realizes the father's supposed to protect. Right, right. So there's a connection here that yeah. God, if he, he calls his father's answer of not protecting him as his son godless. So right. what do we know about the character of our father God? Right. Right, that right. he protects, that he advocates for us, that he comes, he is a refuge. But see, what would you say to him when he says, he talks about um, uh, Celia, a slave right. who killed her master because she was being repeatedly raped, and she right. got the death sentence for that. Absolutely, yeah. So, okay, a father's supposed to protect Tyler, but he didn't protect her. Right. He didn't protect uh, one of his good friends who was shot and killed. Mm -hmm. He didn't protect... Uh, in many, many cases. So how do you respond? It, the world is broken, man. I think some things need to just be wept at, not to be respond cognitively. Mm. But some things need to, we just need to grieve. You know, the Bible tells us to weep with those who weep. And we weep recognizing that God doesn't always allow justice to come in this life. Mm. But that he always punishes those who are wicked. Mm. That he always punishes those who are ungodly. And he holds his believers to an account as well. And so what we have to, to wrestle with is the fact that we are not the center of this story. Wow. We are not the center of the story. And, and everything might not work out the way that we want it to. We might not get justice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Our people might not be completely free by the time we die. Mm -hmm. Our kids might have to face some of the same things that we face. But we trust and we believe that because God has allowed us to see these things, that he's not leaving us to ourselves. That's right. But that he is a good God who desires to show us that he has been in our place that he identifies with the that he became a man why so that he could feel the same infirmities that we do and that's good news it's good that's news very, to know that god news. isn't just in heaven but he came down and he inhabited incarnationally was around us yeah and knowing that knowing the example of christ and knowing that he died on our behalf it gives us great hope does it always fit no is it always perfect is it always the best answer it is the right answer but does it always realistic. resonate with where we're at right now? No, it doesn't. But we trust that's belief. That's and it would be arrogant for us to say, God, you have to do what I say when I say to do it. Mm. We're not the center of this story. He is. That's the word. That's tough, man. So what are we going to do, man? We're going to pray for Coates. For real. Yeah, we need to, yeah. bro. Why don't we bow our heads and pray for, for Brother Tanahasi right now um, as we get ready to close. And I think it's just a great time to pray for him that the Lord would... Um, just capture his heart, capture his soul, and yeah. also that he would come to a knowledge of the truth. Right, right. Father, we thank you um, just for this time. We thank you for this great audience. And God, we pray that even as we just talk about these things, that we're not flippant, we're not dismissive, but we recognize that Tanahasi Coates is a, a neighbor. And God, you have called us to love our neighbors as ourselves, that the second greatest commandment outside of loving you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength is that we love our brother. So Father, I pray that you would, whatever he's wrestling with, that you would send people to him that would give him an explanation, that would give him a defense of your word, your gospel, that would show him the truth, that would show him places where his thinking may have been filled with blind spots. God, show him places where he might be confused, that he might not see properly. God, we recognize that, that this is not a brother that's just out somewhere that we can't identify with. God, even when we were yet sinners, you died for us. You saved us. So, Father, our heart breaks for the pain that we hear, for the pain that he feels, 
I pray that we would weep at these things, weep with our neighbors. But God, I pray that we would have true biblical eschatological hope that you will make the wrongs right. You will make all things new. And even as you have come, God, we believe you. We trust you. We trust that we are not the center of this story, but that you are. We thank you for these things. And I pray that this will be communicated to our brother in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Y'all enjoy that? This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.